I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 38, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 5 to 11. And after that, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 1, Antiquity, Homosexuality in Ancient Times. Regarding the practice of homosexuality at the beginning of mankind's recorded history, we can be certain of only a few historical facts. As for the motivations and justifications for these acts and the nature and circumstances of the individuals committing them, these remain in the realm of speculation, cloaked in the mists of, and mist of time. We do know that homosexual practices existed in most, if not all, ancient cultures of the Eastern Mediterranean, including Babylon and Egypt, and were associated primarily with fertility rites of God and goddess, polytheistic worship, including the worship of male deities such as Baal and Dionysus and goddesses such as Ishtar and Astarte. Temple prostitution included both male and female same-sex congress, and often served as a source of revenue for both the temple and the individual. We also know that among the Hebrew people for whom the Old Testament teachings were paramount, homosexuality was condemned as a violation of God's law, and cultic prostitution and homosexuality were held to be synonymous with ungodliness, heresy, and tribal disloyalty. Paleo Judeus 30 B.C. to 45 A.D., the ancient Jewish philosopher condemned the sexual excesses of the men of Sodom in language uncannily familiar. They threw off their necks the law of nature and applied themselves to drinking of strong liquor and dainty feeding and forbidden forms of intercourse. Men mounted males without respect for the sex nature which the active partner shares with the passer. Then, as little by little, they accustomed those who were by nature men to submit to play the part of women. They settled them with the forbidden curse of a female disease. Philo's condemnation of homosexual acts, as Rada has pointed out, was mirrored by another Jewish author, Flavius Josephus, 37 to 100 A.D., who in Jewish Antiquities 15, 28 to 29, commends Herod on his decision not to send young Aristobulus to Rome, lest Anthony sodomize him. In the, to the Old Testament tradition, we can add both Tumultic and post-Tumultic sources, which hold that all homosexual acts are condemned and considered a moral perversion, an analogous, an outrageous and disgusting deed, a serious violation of the Torah's command, and therefore a grave sin. I think it pertinent at this point to remind the reader that before the current era of biblical homosexual revisionism, the sin of Sodom was logically and universally held to be sodomy and not inhospitality on the part of the men of Sodom. The Greek experiment. Sometimes homosexual revisionists 
collide with one another on the question of the true nature of Greek love as practiced in ancient Greece. On one hand, we are told that homoerotic love thrived in ancient Greece, permeating all Greek institutions and social classes from the archaic period beginning in 800 BC until the final Roman conquest and beyond. On the other hand, we are told that homosexuality never really existed in ancient Greece because the Greeks did not recognize the homosexual person as having a distinct identity. Further, this side argues, while Greek society permitted and even encouraged homosexual expression and liaisons, these were bound by rigid rules and regulations enforced by severe penalties. Further, such homosexual relationships did not dispense a male citizen from fulfilling his normal marital and familial duties and obligations when he came of age. What then is the truth, or perhaps I should say truths, of the matter? We can and should begin our exploration of the role that homoerotic values and practices played in ancient Greece by remembering some of our elementary grade history lessons on ancient Greece. First, we need to differentiate between the various epochs of early Greek history, starting with Homeric Greece and ending with the sacking of Corinth and Athens by the Romans, which brought the Hellenistic age to a close. Secondly, we need to recall that the geographical world of ancient Greece extended far beyond today's borders and consisted of hundreds of city-states bound together by an endless and an interchangeable litany of million military alliances and treaties with their neighbors, but uniquely separated by their own ethnic composition, history, and cultural and religious mores. Among the major geographical groupings were the Dorians, Sparta, Argos, Corinth, and the island of Crete, the Aeolians, Boeotia and Lesbos, and the Ionians, the world of Homer, Athens, and the Aegean regions of Asia Minor, Homeric Greece. Our knowledge of the Archaean Age, covering the Trojan War, the fall of the Mycenaean, and the immigration of the Dorians onto the Greek mainland, and the beginning of the Dark Ages, 1100 to 800 BC comes to us primarily through the epic writings of Homer. From the Iliad and the Odyssey comes a profile of the everyday rural life and travels of the early Greeks and the strong patriarchal familial bonds and deep male friendships that cemented their existence in a rough and barely unwelcome land. Rough and largely unwelcome land. Government was simple and of and by the clan with kings possessing powers that were limited but wide in scope. By later standards, they were a sober, generous, hardworking, and modest people whose wealth was more likely to be invested in ornate palaces rather than temples. Slaves were not numerous and were employed primarily as household attendants. Like all Greeks, their overriding passion was for games and athletic contests. In an era when the, where the family 
not the state, was considered the everlasting unit. Marriages were arranged with love, coming after rather than before betrothment. Though always a man's world, the status of women was relatively high, and wives played an important role in familial decision-making. Greek women were held to be uncommonly beautiful and Greek men uncommonly handsome. The former, as opposed to the latter, were expected to be chaste and faithful. Young women were trained by their mothers in the womanly arts, while young men were trained by their fathers in the manly art of the chase and of war. Not all of Greek life was idyllic. Impenicide and concubinage were not unknown but to the early Greeks. They were cruel in war and audacious in spirit. It was a reputation among their enemies for being less than honorable in, the, in their business dealings and political and military agreements. As to the possible existence of homoerotic attachments in early Greek society, we know virtually nothing. Certainly neither the times nor customs of the early Greeks favored the development of homosexual practices. With survival as a top priority, male-female sexual relations were normative. Education for both sexes was homebound, thus limiting exposure to environments conducive to pederasty. Early Greek folklore does not mention homosexuality. The beautiful mythical Trojan youth Ganymede was carried off by Zeus to be his cupbearer, not his catamite. And Homer's Achilles and Patroclus were devoted brothers-in-arms, not homosexual lovers. All this would change, however, with the Greek revisionists of the classical era, where we begin to witness the full extent of the historic influences of the Dorian Cretan military ethos and Persian influences from the East on Greek sexual mores, including the adoption of various forms of homosexual practices in Greek society, a shift in Greek sexual ethics. By 500 BC, Greek life in major city-states, such as Imperial Athens, had undergone a considerable transformation from the days of Homer. These changes at virtually every level of Greek society produced societal conditions traditionally associated with the rise of sexual unorthodoxy in general and homoerotic vice in particular, especially among the upper classes. Among the most important of these paradigm shifts were the rise of the power of the state over the family and clan with the subsequent decline in the importance of family life and natural conjugal and parent-child affections. The state became a de facto paternal surrogate for the Greek male citizen from early childhood until death. The disruptive climate of perpetual military preparedness against foreign and domestic enemies that mitigated against peaceful development and undermined social stability of the great republics. The increased urbanization of Greek cities with an ever-widening slave base serving a minority elite leisure class. A decline in the status of women from earlier periods of Greek culture. The institutional segregation of the sexes, especially in the upper classes. And finally, the growth of a male culture dominated by a machismo ethic with emphasis on male nudity and homoeroticism and lived out in the all-male environs of the symposia and gymnasia. 
among many of the adult upper-class males of the classical period, the pursuit of sexual pleasure, youth, and beauty involved a certain degree of fluidity unprejudiced by gender. For the sexual profligate, the object of one's attentions was virtually unlimited and interchangeable. Man, non-citizen or woman, wife or mistress, slave, including a eunuch or prostitute, and even under certain circumstances, one or more comely youth of one's own social class. Prostitutes of both sexes were available to, to all for a price. Those of the female gender were readily distinguished by dress and social status, with the, with the porni at the lowest end of the profession, and the sophisticated, well-educated, and skilled hateri serving more wealthy and influential clients. In the case of male prostitutes, composed largely of freeborn foreigners and men from the lower classes, there were no such distinctions. It was strictly sex for sex's sake. Like the modern homosexual meal meat rack, the criteria for selection was simply youth and sex appeal. The young men could be rented out by the hour or on a contractual basis and kept like a mistress. Some male prostitutes depilated their bodies, dressed in female clothing, and wore high heel shoes and makeup, veils and makeup. Lucian of Samosota, 120 to 190 AD, the Greek satirist of the second century AD, railed against the male effeminates of his own day with their mimicry, with their mincing gait, languishing eyes, and honeyed voice. Critical of the buyer as well as the seller, Lucian put his thoughts on male homosexuality into the mouth of one of his female characters who says, I do not care for a man who himself wants one. One should take care, however, against giving the impression that the sexual libertarianism of the upper classes was entirely open-ended. It was not. All societies have sexual rules that apply even to the elite and ancient Greeks was no exception. All major events in life, including marriage, birth, and death, were sanctified by traditional religious rites. All citizens, whatever their sexual idiosyncrasies or gender preference, were expected to marry and produce heirs and future citizens. As historian Will Durant has stated, all the forces of religion, property, and the state united against childlessness. Anti-social acts punished under the law included acts of sexual violence, rape of freeborn children, and the corruption of freeborn youth, not slaves. And while prostitution was legal and taxed by the state, it was a crime for a male citizen to offer his body for sale to another adult male. Such a homosexual misadventure was punished by the loss of certain political rights and met with social disapproval from his peers. Finally, where homosexual relations involved males of the same citizen class, the law as well as custom provided for an 
for even a wide range of prohibitions on social and legal sanctions. Educated pederasty, the Athenian model, the Romans called ephibic love, that is, male homosexuality practiced with adolescents, the Greek vice. Most readers are more familiar with the term pederasty than paid or pederasty, defined as sexual attraction of an adult male for a boy who had passed puberty but not yet reached maturity. If necessary, if necessity is the mother of invention, it is not difficult to discover why and how this particular form of homosexual behavior found its way into the upper echelons of urban Athenian society. It was, as we shall see, a simple case of supply and demand requiring only a modicum of philosophical or pedagogical justification to ensure legitimacy. But first, permit me to set the scene for Athens during the classical period, 500 to 400 BC. By today's standards, the imperial city had a relatively small population that harbored only about 300,000, one-third of whom were slaves. The remainder of the population consisted of foreigners or resident aliens, farmers, miners, artisans, merchants, bankers, soldiers, women and children, all of whom were excluded from the franchise and ruled over by a jealously circumscribed circle of 43,000 male citizens, from whom the wealthier leisured class was drawn. With ports opening up to the Aegean Sea, Athens was a great trading and commercial center, as well as the cultural center of the Greek world, where the arts, literature, drama, and architecture flourished. Classical Athens, unfortunately, placed less emphasis upon achieving a strong familial foundation. In comparison with the Roman family model, the upper-class father generally left his children's upbringing to his wife and the state as he busied himself with the affairs of the day. An Athenian woman from the upper classes entered into an arranged marriage in her mid to late teens. Until that time, she lived a fairly secluded home life distinguished by a strict segregation from the opposite sex with the exception of her husband, father, and other male family members. Virginity in a bride, the sexual fidelity of, fidelity of a wife, and the legitimacy of one's offspring were of great import in the Athenian society. A rich young Athenian male citizen, on the other hand, did not marry until much later, usually about age 30. His public life began at age six when he entered a private school for a classical education in writing, music, and gymnastics suited to the development of both body and mind. This formal schooling ushered the young child into an all-male environment. Later, his education was expanded to include instruction in oratory, science, philosophy, and history, as well as training in the martial arts in preparation for military service. At age 18, he entered into the ranks of soldier youth. He trained for two years in the duties of citizenship and war, at which time he became eligible for local military postings. 
At 21, he became a citizen of Athens with full and equal rights under the law and assumed the military and fiscal responsibilities that accompanied his new status. From here, he would, could move on into a formal military army or naval career, a life of public service, or become patron of the arts, or a multiplicity of other life options of his own choosing. Unfortunately, his sexual options were more limited. Marriage was a sturdy, was a number of years away. Prolonged sexual abstinence would draw unwelcome suspicions. There was no law in Athens that prevented him from slaking his sexual desires, natural or unnatural, on a slave or prostitute of either sex, but not as Dover suggests, where he where would be the thrill of the chase in such ordinary and crass liaisons. No, the manly role of the hunter and seducer demanded an altogether different love object, one from his own class, one of his own sex, only younger. Young, yet not too young, the sexual seduction of a freeborn, prepubescent child was a crime, and not too old, sex with a youth sporting a heavy beard was socially prescribed as an overt homosexual act. An adolescent youth somewhere between the age of 14 and 19 would be just right. The only missing ingredient was a suitable rationalization for pederasty, pederastic homosexuality, which the curious, which the various philosophical schools in Athens, never a disinterested party where homosexuality was concerned, were quick to provide. As writer John Addington Simmons notes in an essay on Greek sexual ethics, the normally degrading act of submitting oneself to anal penetration could be made acceptable within a new context of a socially sanctioned custom. Under the new philosophical umbrella, vice was now capable of producing virtue in a suitable pederastic pairing. Was not the fertile mind capable of procreating beauty, great literature and laws more valuable than a fertile lady that only produced children, asked the proponents of pederasty. The Eromenos Erastes ideal, the ideal younger partner in any pederastic relationship, the Eromenos was a high-born adolescent, androgynous and beautiful in body, intelligent of mind, modest and circumspect in deportment. In terms of his sexual role, the youth always played the passive and submissive partner, i.e. he played the female role. If he was exceptionally handsome and or especially talented in playing the coquette and making the chase interesting, he could attract a wide number of potential suitors. Once he made his selection, he owed his mentor, lover, filia, love, friendship, and his unwavering obedience and loyalty. For the older lover, the Orestes, who was always of equal or higher social status, the norms of pederastic courtship 
was strictly prescribed. He played the role of the ardent lover, wooing his beloved with expensive gifts, not money, which would smack of prostitution, escorting him to the symposia and watching him perform naked at the gymnasia. The ideal Erastes was heroic, chivalrous, faithful, and above all manly. Being at the height of his sexual powers, he played out his sexual role as the dominant that is an active partner, that is active partner, by by combining his mental skills and virtues with physical erotic affection. He was and he was said to touch the very soul of his beloved and inspire in him all that was beautiful and admirable. In terms of specific sex acts, it appears that Fratich, an inter an intercrural form of masturbation by the senior partner between the thighs of the youth with or without manual manipulation of his young partner rather than anal penetration sodomy was a more common practice, although both were known to occur in these relationships. The preference for the preference for the former over the latter in pederastic relationships is not surprising. Sodomy by its very nature is an aggressive, degrading and humiliating act for any human being, male or female. It also requires a certain degree of preparation and manual manipulation by the interior to minimize the pain initially associated with anal penetration. There were Eromanus Erastes relationships that were chased and neither partner appeared to have suffered from such an arrangement. The positive aspects of the Eromanus Erastes relationship, I believe, could be attributed to the senior partner's role as a quasi-surrogate father, mentor, and trainer of his young protege in military or political and oratory skills, rather than his role as a bugger of boys. Historian David Cohen, in a reference to the production of Autonomous Children, as outlined in Plato's Republic, has shed some light on the role of pederasty in ancient Athens. Cohen observed that historically the papacy incapacity of mothers and the failure of fathers to assume direct responsibility for the development of their sons created a gap which pederasty sought to fill. He then quoted an observation by George Devereux that the Greek father usually failed to counsel his son. Instead, he counseled another man's son in whom he was erotically interested. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 2, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 1. Jesus. 4.30. Jesus means in Hebrew, God saves. At the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel gave him the name Jesus as his proper name, which expresses both his identity and his mission. Since God alone can forgive sins, it is God who, as Jesus, his eternal Son, made man, will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, God recapitulates all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. 
431, in the history of salvation, God was not content to deliver Israel out of the house of bondage by bringing them out of Egypt. He also saves them from their sin. Because sin is always an offense against God, only he can forgive it. For this reason, Israel, becoming more and more aware of the universality of sin, will no longer be capable, will no longer be able to seek salvation except by invoking the name of the Redeemer God. 432. The name Jesus signifies that the very name of God is present in the person of his Son, made man for the universal and definitive redemption from sins. It is the divine name that alone brings salvation, and henceforth all can invoke his name, for Jesus united himself to all men through his incarnation, so that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which all by which we must be saved. 433. The name of the Savior God was invoked only once in the year by the high priest in atonement for the sins of Israel, after he had sprinkled the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies with the sacrificial blood. The mercy seat was the place of God's presence. When St. Paul, Paul speaks of Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood, he means that in Christ's humanity, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 434. Jesus' resurrection glorifies the name of the Savior God, for from that time on it is the name of Jesus that fully manifests the supreme power of the name which is above every name. The evil spirits fear his name. In his name his disciples perform miracles, for the Father grants all they ask in his in this name. 435. The name of Jesus is at the heart of Christian prayer. All liturgical prayers conclude with the words through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Hail Mary reaches its high point in the words, Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Eastern prayer of the heart, the Jesus prayer says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Many Christians, such as St. Joan of Arc, have died with the one word, Jesus, on their lips. 2. Christ. 436. The word Christ comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed. It became the name proper to Jesus only because he accomplished perfectly the divine mission that Christ signifies. In effect, in Israel, those consecrated to God for a mission that he gave were anointed in his name. This was the case for kings, for priests, and in rare instances, the for prophets. They had to be, this had to be the case, all the more so for the Messiah, whom God would send to inaugurate his kingdom definitively. It was necessary that the Messiah be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord at once, as long as as long as king and priest, and also as prophet. Jesus fulfilled 
at once as king and priest and also as prophet. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. 437. To the shepherds, he er the angel announced the birth of Jesus as the Messiah promised to Israel. Mm -hmm. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. From the beginning, he was the one God whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, conceived as holy in Mary's virginal womb. God called Joseph to take Mary as your bride, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and so that Jesus, who is called Christ, should be born of Joseph's spouse into the messianic lineage of David. 438. Jesus' messianic consecration reveals his divine mission, for the name Christ implies he who anointed, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. The one who anointed is the Father, the one who was anointed is the Son, and the he who and he was anointed with the Spirit, who is the anointing. His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he, might, that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. His works and words will manifest him as the Holy One of God. 438. 439. Many Jews and even certain Gentiles who shared their hope recognized in Jesus the fundamental attributes of the messianic son of David promised by God to Israel. Jesus accepted his rightful title of Messiah, though with some reserve because it was understood by some of his contemporaries in too human a sense as essentially political. 440. Jesus accepted Peter's profession of faith, which acknowledged him to be the Messiah by announcing the imminent passion of the Son of Man. He unveiled the authentic content of his messianic kingship, both in the transcendent identity of the Son of Man, who came down from heaven, and in his redemptive mission as a suffering servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hence, the true meaning of his kingship is revealed only when he is raised high on the cross. Only after the resur his resurrection will Peter be able to proclaim Jesus' messianic kingship to the people of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And that's all my reading from the rite of sodomy and the catechism for today. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.